of all the people, I probably do need a microphone. I think. Am I? You, are you hearing me? I'm not speaking. Okay, they're not so good. I'll just I'll do my best. It's normally that I'm going too fast rather than anything else. So please stop me if I if I do that again. Thanks very much for the invitation. We can give this. Is that? Yeah, that seems okay. Okay, we'll, we'll give that a shot. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, the last one on a, a, a hot afternoon, so I'll do my best. Please do stay with me. There, there are pictures. There are nice pictures. <laughs> so do, make the most of this. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this, this question of impact in relation to a project that I work on. So, does it work? After what's now 20 or 30 years of truth commissions here and, and trials there and reparations over here, we, we are recently starting to think seriously about, does this do anything? And if it does do something, what does it do and how do we know what it does? And that's the point at which lawyers discovered social science and, and vice versa. So we're starting to think about whether we, we are actually doing any good and how do we understand the good we are trying to do. So what is the impact? Impact of what, first of all? Impact of what and on what? Okay. So if, if we think about transitional justice, and I do, as everything that is done and also everything that is not done about truth, about justice, including amnesty, and about reparations in the aftermath of, of political violence, I think the first phase of transitional justice thinking before we started to think about impact is very much voluntaristic. Transitional justice is what you make of it. It's really what states do. It's policy decisions in the immediate aftermath. It's very state-focused and it's very public policy-focused and it's quite linear, I think. And also somewhat teleological, there's this instrumental logic about transitional justice, if we do it at all, it's for some, it's in the service of a greater good. Transitional justice measures are thought to be for or are held up and measured and, and weighed up against some other goal, be that democracy, be that current human rights protection, or be that social cohesion. These are three of the things that were set out in the framework of this particular panel. And these are the things, initially, that are supposed to make transitional justice necessary or supposed to make it unwise because they will imperil it. So almost early on, transitional justice is always being thought about in relation to something else further down the road. And the recipe that you get from that, I think, is this idea that you can mix and match policy options along these three dimensions to get closer to this preferred goal that you have. So here it's democracy, or here is current human rights protections, or here is social cohesion, or re reconciliation, or however you want to talk about it. Um, and you know, you choose, you do as much or as little truth and justice and reparations as you think you can get away with, or as you think you ought to do in order to, or in, in, in function of and thinking about that, that other um, goal. But I think that we've moved on from there, I hope we have. I think experience is, is a great teacher. What we have seen in terms of the countries that have longer trajectory now with this, Firstly, that not all transitions go towards democracy, whatever that is. And I think it's interesting that increasingly democratization theorists don't talk anymore about consolidation. It's, we are still stopped talking about consolidation. They say, oh, it's really more complicated. We need to think about deepening in one aspect that can contradict deepening in another aspect. We have transitions that, transitional justice mechanisms that are trying to engineer transitions before we have transition. We have intra-democratic transitions, such as in the case of Northern Ireland. So it's much more complex, what are we heading towards, and are we always heading towards the export of some kind of Western-style form of liberal democracy? No, we're not always. The relationship between past and present human rights protections is also very complex. You can find a correlation, but is that really a cause? What does past impunity have to do with present um, protection or impunity? It's really not clear. And if social cohesion, if by social cohesion we mean some kind of agreed um, official story or official history or master narrative, we don't really see much of that either. 
even the softer end of transitional justice measures like memorialization are still very hotly contested, at least in all the places that I know. And also I think the dimensions of transitional justice are not neatly bounded. Truth has implications for justice, more truth uh, later down the line challenges, the absence of justice in some settings, and so on and so on. We can't really advance in one and leave the other untruncated. I think that's just what we see. And that leads us to a revision really of, of early transitional justice thinking and thinking about this much more as a cycle. Truth, justice, reparations, they are not stepping stones that take you somewhere necessarily. They're interlinked things and they're often revisited and they're often endlessly revisited, again, in all the contexts I know. And the end point has disappeared from this, this schema because we're not really sure what it is anymore. Or we're not sure if we're moving. If we're moving at all, are we moving forward or are we moving backward? So not all transitions advance towards this, this um, neatly defined um, other thing that we think of as a social good. And I think that's just empirically so. What does that mean for impact and for measuring impact? And since it's easier if you know what the endpoint is, okay? If, if the if the endpoint is is somehow ill-defined or is somehow now diverse because transitional justice settings are more complex, then I wonder whether we can think about measuring what we have, whether we can think about looking for endogenous indicators, looking about looking more inside the box of transitional justice and how it's applied and and how it, it evolves as a process, and just forgetting for a moment about about these these bigger indicators or looking for kind of mid-level components of these bigger indicators. Okay. So what do people think about the transitional justice they have had? Rather than saying, what do people think about their democracy, and let's compare that to what transitional justice they have had. Because too many other things are affecting what they have and what they think about their democracy, I would argue. And similarly for these other big goals. And you can look at public opinion work, but you can ask questions about what people think about transitional justice, rather than assuming that the other things are a proxy for or, or an effect of transitional justice. And I think we can also look for mid-range measurable effects on not on the whole institution, institutionality, not on state and that's not on democracy on a scale, but on specific sectors of the state that we're interested in or that we know are affected by specific transitional justice measures, can't fail to be affected by it, like trials and the justice system somehow go together. Um, or we know that they matter for truth or for justice or for reconciliation. So the kind of justice policy you have is going to affect what happens to courts, but also what happens to courts, the kind of courts you have is going to affect and in some cases determine what prospects you have. So justice sector or justice system actors who are responsible for justice. So we can start, I think, to explore relation smaller relationships. What's the relationship between specific transitional justice measures and the rule of law? rather than transitional justice and democracy, which is this big thing, and we need to, we need to worry a lot about that. So let's, you know, let's kind of see if we can get anywhere by narrowing the focus and doing this a bit at a time. And that takes us, that's, that's the project that I, I currently work on, and that's some of what we try to do. So I just want to quickly <laughs> um, illustrate that through, through some of what we do in the observatory. Am I going too fast? And now my audio, this is good, this is very unusual. Okay. So, the, this project began with a conference in 2008 for the 10th anniversary of the Pinochet case, Pinochet arrest in, in the UK. So, we're in Chile and we said we can't let this go by, we have to think about what has this meant nationally, regionally, internationally, 10 years on. We borrowed the title from the Uro Ariazza, who very kindly lent it to us. So, the Pinochet effect. And we brought people from Argentina and Chile and Uruguay and Peru, and, and they all said somehow, they said lots of different things, but the things that they said that were the same, something is going on. 
And it's regional, it's not just about Chile, it's not just about Garzón, it's not about Spain, it's something happening around us. And we're seeing that the, a resurgence of the transitional justice questions that we thought in some cases were buried, particularly trials, seem to be breaking out all over. And we are all being asked the same questions. We all have people calling us up saying, how many trials are there and who's on trial and why are they on trial and what's going on? And we don't really know. So looking for things that we could usefully start to, to find out, we said, well, let's just let's start by finding out what we've got. What kind of animal is this? You know, and then we can look at its family tree, but let's just see if it, whether it's an elephant or what, you know, what is it. Let's just see what, what's going on. And that was the origins of what's now the observatory project. And what it does is very simple. It maps current judicial cases for dictatorship area human rights violations in Chile. It tries to do that in ways that are useful for case actors as well as for academic research. And it also tries to feed that into the ongoing social debate in Chile, at least, about what this all means. The dilemmas that we have in doing this, academic research versus immediate needs. So do we, do we publish this, do we participate, or do we observe? Do we wait until we've got the picture and then we write and publish it in English in a journal, or do we feed this information as we go, which also, of course, affects and changes the, the case universe that we're looking at. I was in um, Greenwich just a few days ago, and being a tourist in my own country, and um, the, the astronomer royal locked himself away for, for years, decades, measuring, making up star charts, and Newton was waiting to get his hands on this stuff, and finally he could wait no longer, and he smuggled this out, and he published it, and the astronomer royal was furious, and he said, I haven't finished, and it's not right, and I need to check it, and we have this all the time. So people, we need to know what's going on. Well, you know, we just need to make sure it's all. You know. So this dilemma about you know, who are we producing this stuff for, and at what point do we start to feed it out, is is very present for us anyway. Are we users of data or are we producers of data? And this is something that that I, very strongly struck me. Something John said um, when I heard him speak one time. We found that if you look for the sources that are available, you find that they don't they're no use. With a very little use, they were initially of use. We did all sorts of things. We located the sources, we did a survey, we negotiated access, we talked to the case bringers, the lawyers, the courts, the ministries, we used the access to information law, we looked at all of that, and we found out that the official data was hopeless. It was incomplete, it was contradictory, the justice, the prison system didn't know what the judges were doing, the judges and the interior ministry give you different information. So it, it's, I worry about hoovering up official data and feeding it into something else. Because we found that official data is so patchy, and this is in one of the more institutionalized of the Latin American countries. So then you say, okay, then if you scale it up regionally, how good is this official data that, that you're condemned to using if you're not in a position to produce your own data? Someone needs to perfect that official data at the same time. You know, is that our job? Is that their job? The state sources we were trying to use said, well, can you help us? Can you, you, know, you can do it for us. You can be the source. And in a sense, what we want is for them to produce the data because they ought to produce the data, and we want a control. We want an independent control where we can see if what's going on, and, and if we work together, then we're no longer independent, and also we're in no position to, to put each other's mistakes right. Another dilemma or another problem, we become a frontline service because no one really does this. So people call us up all the time with really basic questions about reparations, about things the state should be telling them. Am I on the, the recent Survivors Truth Commission list or not? because it's on a website, and that's the only place it is. So if you want to know, you need to know how to use it. So people call us up and they ask us things that really are not our business to tell them, but of course we, we want to tell them. We get people calling us up about, about where remains may be buried. We get people calling us up about a whole range of really strange things that really should be going to other people. So we spend a lot of time fielding that kind of thing. And we also start to get nasty phone calls on, on those emails in, in, in capitals with pink sort of backgrounds. <laughs> 
Okay, so I don't know. Is that maybe that's an indicator of impact? We're obviously um, upsetting the right people. Maybe is is, is not. Yeah. And it all takes a very very long time. So you know, if official data doesn't work, then we start to put together our own data piece by piece. We take these cases apart and we feed them into this database. And it's a definite downside compared to these big end comparisons because I can guarantee it takes forever. And we do the same for perpetrators. Oh, sorry, it goes on. But what about impact? When we've, when we've done all of that, we'll never have done all of that because it's a moving target. But we've filled it in and now we're kind of keeping it running. What about the impact? There's impact of this and there's impact that we try to measure with this or through this. The, there's two examples of impact of what we do directly that we've seen. One on the production of official data, this idea about perfecting the sources for when you're not there anymore, as Catherine said. And another actually on, on the, the internal practice of trials on sentencing practice and legislation. So just, just quickly. Official, this, this, it doesn't matter that this is in Spanish, just for the purposes of this. Official numbers of victims, officially recognized victims of disappearance and um, extrajudicial execution in Chile no longer exist or are no longer produced by the state. There have been three instances of two truth commissions, rounds and rounds and rounds, and no one's, it is no one's job within the state to put that together and to tell you who has been added to the list, who has been taken off the list, and what is the final list. So we had to do this. So we went to every possible government source available, and then we don't really know. And it's their job, we're going to ask them, and you're going to, everyone sent us back to everyone else. So we produced this, and we come up with a final total, which then becomes the number, so the number of... Um, victims of disappearance, death and disappearance, and here the number of survivors through these different iterations of the various commissions. But the thing that, that and that's been very useful and everyone, everyone's very happy that we've done it, the thing that caused um, a, a force at IBM was this, and all you have to know here is that this is the two rounds of what was supposed to be the same truth commission about survivors. So you go to the first one, was carried out in 2004-05, another round of it was carried out last year. And these are the... the, the the proportions of people whose testimonies were accepted and who were finally put on the list, whose cases, in other words, were validated by those two rounds of what was supposed to be the same commission with the same criteria and the same operating procedure. And in the first commission, almost 80% of people who testified were recognized finally on the list. And in the second commission, as you can see, it was a much lower. It was nearly only just over 30% of people who went along. There are some valid reasons for that. The second round of cases are the, the difficult cases from the first round. But there are also, that's a very, very big discrepancy. And what it forced the commission to do was make some kind of explanation about you know, the reasons people have been qualified or not, which they had not been prepared to do up until this point. So this caused a, a, a route, or this raised a question, which they were then forced to answer. And it's also produced legal challenges to some of the um, changes in criteria, because in fact we discovered the criteria were not the same, they were applied differently. Um, and there's no appeals mechanism, which there was in the first round. So that exposed uh, a discrepancy that, that is now, at least in the process of being challenged. And the other thing that happens is that our data then crops up in all respective <coughs> places. I was in Argentina at a conference, and a, um, a, official, a Chilean government official was talking and giving numbers for reparations figures, which I was dutifully copying down because I needed them. And then I started to see these, um, these um, graphics, which look very familiar, and I thought, well, that's our trials data. But it was appearing as official government data. So I went and said to him, oh, you know, wait, those numbers for reparations are very interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, the child's data, I won't even ask you about that. And he, he said, oh, yeah, it's very nice. Did you see? It's very detailed. Very good, isn't it? And I think he didn't know that it was our data, but he, he got it. I asked him where he got it from. He got it from the president's office. 
So this data is now being produced as, as official data, which is a problem on one, in one way and, and very nice in another way. So that was, uh, that was kind of interesting. Another example, case data and prisoner data, we, we, we add or we count. These are the cases that are currently active. These, da these particular graphics are a little bit older. There are newer graphics on the website. This is just the ones I had available in this format to show you what we did. So we publish this on the website all the time. How many cases are open and um, how many agents, perpetrators are charged or have been found guilty. In terms of prisoners, when we started to do this, Okay, so these are the prisoners here. Um, these numbers go up and down. When we began, the state said there are 260 prisoners, and we could only find 66. So it's not going up again. So this little red thing. They were saying, oh, there are 260 people in that piece. And we said, well, where are they? Because we've only got, if we go to the prison service and track these down one by one, we only find 66. Oh, well, actually, no. Um, when we say that there are prisoners, what we mean, these are the people with final confirmed sentences. But only two-thirds of them go to prison because their sentences are below three years, meaning that they don't go to prison at all. They go home, and they're supposed to sign once a month, but in fact there's no supervision of that. So the official government data, or the official kind of position of the Chilean government internationally, is that we have 260 people serving sentences for human rights crimes. Two-thirds of those people are, in effect, serving no sentence whatsoever. And that we, we made them acknowledge that by, by asking them where these people were. So they then came down to 72, which is still slightly you know, a discrepancy of six people. So we said, well, what about these other six? So you're recognizing that you know, only 72 of these guys are supposed to be in prison, so, so which of them are not in prison? Oh, actually, we've released six of them early because... So we start, as you push, you start to find out things that, that, that the official sources are reluctant to, to, to um, reveal. Well, we can shoppingly. This is the, the last time I... Every time I leave the country, something happens. Last time I left the country, someone called me in the taxi and said, I'm in the... This is a very uptown shopping mall. I'm in an uptown shopping centre, and, and I've just seen Odlanian Mena out shopping with his wife. Odlanian Mena was the last head of the um, Secret Service, and he's supposed to be in prison. And I said, are you sure it's him? He said, well, of course, I'm sure it's him. And I was in four years being detained by this man, and had a real Ariel Dorfman kind of encounter with his torture moment, was furious with me for for even questioning this identification. And I said, he said, what should I do? And I said, well, phone the police. Because this guy should be in prison. Oh, I don't want to, can you do it? Can you do it? So I phoned the police and I said, look, I'm really sorry, it's probably not, and this is not, it probably is. And it was. And they said, oh, well, he's in, he's in prison. No, he is in prison, but we let him out the weekends so that he can go shopping with his wife. Because the poor man's not really well. So, so you know, the point is things you find out by asking for the numbers and by looking, comparing the numbers and saying there's something here that doesn't quite add up. The outcome, amongst the outcomes of that, um, a draft bill is now under discussion to stipulate no common benefits for aggravated crimes. In other words, these, are, these benefits are real, but they should only be applied to, to common criminals, is the argument. So there's a draft bill to say, well, this really, these kinds of things should not go on with these particular prisoners. And or that military um, figures convicted of crimes against civilians should go to civilian jails, which is the practice in Argentina and has not been the practice in Chile up to now. Most of these guys are in a military facility. Um, which looks rather more like a country club than a, a prison, it really does. There's a question whether that's progress from a current human rights visa perspective, but it's an outcome, it's an impact of, of people's, of revelations about what is actually going on within the current transitional justice process anyway. Okay, I'll move on quickly. Cases, we were comparatively counting cases with Argentina, so this whole project was designed with Argentina so that we would have some comparability and some specificity. What we found was that less can be more. One, in Chile, with some exceptions, one victim, one case. In Argentina, the ESMA case has hundreds of thousands of victims and hundreds of perpetrators. 
So if we just said, okay, how many cases are there in Chile? Six. How many cases are there in Argentina? Five. We would say, oh, there is more judicial activity in Chile. There is not more judicial activity. You have to find another way to measure it. We, we, it, we discovered that it didn't work to just compare a case to a case. So what do we do now? We measure the completeness of the judicial response. We say, what's the percentage of the officially recognized total of victims who have or who have had a case? And we show it this way. Alongside the numbers, we show what it means in terms of the proportions of victims who've had a case over time, a serious case. Um, the outcome of that, that is a, it's a purely academic imperative. When we looked at the methodology, it just didn't work to compare you know, um, two things that weren't comparable. But once people saw that graphic, the Relatives Association said, well, this should be 100%, and we're going to make sure it is. So they decided to adopt 100% coverage as their goal and started to bring new cases. And they brought a whole... Um, a whole wave of new complaints in 2011, the state also started to do that. Another question, is that progress from a strategic litigation perspective? Because the courts are suddenly full of cases and they're all going to take much longer. But, you know, relatives, given the, with the information we gave them, they decided that that was what they wanted to do. So. Finally, so, please. Just one example of impact or two, but only one I'll talk about. So that was an impact that we are having, whether desired or not. Secondly, impact we're trying to measure, one is what does the experience, so over a decade now of prosecution of serious um, human rights crimes in Chile, what does that experience done to, this is about institutional impact, specific justice system actors who we know have been involved. So there is a detective branch of the investigative police who have been assigned specifically to work on these cases. They now also work on other cases. They work on current allegations of abuse against the police. Those detectives have been through a very different um, professional experiences from their colleagues. So we're working with them to look at what do they now know or how, do they, how is that being spread throughout the system? Is that being spread throughout the system? And here you have a difference between systems where these cases are done within the regular system and others where a special teams of judges or prosecutors or detectives are assigned. The learning is much quicker, but the diffusion of that learning systemically is much slower. So we're trying to get a pick at some of that with these detectives. And also within the database we can look at um, judges over time and how judges' positive citation of international law and changes across the life of, of, of these cases and what they then do in other cases in the constitutional court and that kind of thing. That's an ongoing um, thing, but we think that's a very specific kind of impact that we, we can get at with the information we have. Secondly is the impact of trials on public opinion, and I will zip through this and then I'll stop. Former authoritarians in Latin America are not unpopular by any means, and here are some of the manifestations of that. The people who don't like Pinochet um, are not that different now from what they were back then. And the people who have ceased to like him have ceased to like him because of corruption and not because of human rights um, revelations, according to them, anyway. This is all public opinion data. It's not us, but it's solid. Fujimori is one of Peru's principal political forces. His daughter almost took the presidency in the um, last election. Bordelaveri, who's one of the uh, Uruguayans who's in prison, his son recently ran for the presidency. He did, however, if you look, he had his surname was in, it's a very distinctive surname, and he made it very small. In fact, initially it wasn't on the posters, and the opposition went to the electoral tribunal and forced him to put it on the posters. So there's a sense in which, there was a sense in which the Bordelaveri surname had become something of a political liability, and yet, you know, he's still only the president, and he did quite respectable. And recent news, um, not, not good news, in my opinion, anyway. Stresner's party, the Colorado party, is now back in power in Paraguay as of last week, after what I think really is a palace coup of the same kind that deposed Stresner. So that's just a scenario. 
all that means, all that tells us is that political transition in and of itself doesn't guarantee repudiation of these people in Latin America, much less of their projects, their economic projects, their political, or even their authoritarian projects. This is Pinochet's funeral, Chile's small but um, vocal neo-Nazi movement still openly reivindicating his legacy. Can the justice part of transitional justice change this? So again, what, what, any, is there anything that we do that might change some of this? Do trials have any discernible effect on how people feel about former authoritarians? Can they change their minds at least about the crimes of those regimes? So we asked people about that. I won't go through the, de the data. The data's on the website, and it's on the website in Spanish. But these are the, so we, asked, we went out and asked people. Um, 6% of people said cases should continue. 44% um, of people thought that the current number of people in prison was too low. And we'll stop. This kind of thing. The point maybe with this rather than the data is the, what are we doing, well, how are we doing this? We're doing it comparatively year on year. I'm not, I don't really believe in public opinion data as such, it's complicated. But we can at least track change. It does allow you to track change. So it allows it, we ask the same questions year on year about this. We can see whether at particular moments big verdicts have any impact or truth commission revelations have an impact on how people feel at least about that aspect of the legacy. They're done in country and they're analysed in country and I think that's important. And they're part of a broader national opinion poll survey. The university runs, has always run this survey and we just put a battery of questions into it. It's not standalone transitional justice research and I think that's really important because methodologically it's being done by people who know what they're doing about public opinion work rather than by me who doesn't. But also it gives a better sense of what's the relative importance people attach to this. If we ask them about how they feel about, of course they'll talk to us about transitional justice, but if we ask them how they feel about a whole host of things, we'll see whether it's a, a thing that they actually mention. So that, I think, is important. Conclusions. I think this kind of mid-level mid impact mapping is best done in country. I would almost go so far as to say in terms of some of the interpretive stuff, you can't get at this from outside. This, you can get at other things from outside. Um, you can live on this practitioner observer boundary. It's, it's, there is oxygen out there. It's a, it's a tricky place to be for some of the reasons I've mentioned and some of those tensions, but we, it can be negotiated and we are managing to negotiate it. But I think that we have to, we at least have to let go of these meta goals for transitional justice measurement about democracy and about common human rights situations and just look at the actually existing experience and see what it can tell us. And the consequences, the impact includes these unintended consequences. Transitional justice is not a kind of you know, linear story that advances towards, you know, I don't know, some kind of new dawn. The transitional justice changes as likely to have downsides as upsides. And here are just three of the downsides. This is Adolfo Selingo, um, witness in the Spanish case, now subject to, I don't know how many hundreds of years of, um, of sentence. He's the Argentinian who confessed about the death flights. This, there are serious, I think, due process questions about the treatment of Alonso Silingo and the pretext under which he was got to Spain. And there are serious due process questions about some of the other cases and the abuse of prevented detention by child lawyers as an alternative to punishment because they think that these guys are going to get off. So they argue that at least they spend six months in prevented detention. From any sort of due process and current human rights protection perspective, that's a very complex thing for us to be involved in. Julio Lopez, a witness who disappeared having taken part in a trial in Argentina. This is not cost-free for its participants. And here, um, a recent homage to Pinochet. Um, this was last week, two weeks ago in Chile, just before I came. So this pushing with trials, action provokes reaction, and amongst the reaction is, is, is a resurgence also of this idea of Pinochet as someone whose legacy ought to be um, celebrated rather than thanking him. So I'll leave it there. Thanks Great. for your patience. Thanks,